You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. My name is Christer Alström and I am the director of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And we are very pleased to organize this seminar together with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs. In December 2018, the UN General Assembly affirmed the Global Compact for Refugees, a framework for more predictable and equitable responsibility sharing and recognizing that a sustainable solution to refugee situations cannot be achieved without international cooperation. This December, UNHCR will host its first global forum on refugees in Geneva. It will be an opportunity for countries to take stock of today's situation and to strengthen the international response. At a time where 80% of the world's refugees are hosted by developing countries, and where the number of people forcibly displaced have doubled in 10 years, these issues are of most importance and call for a strengthened international response. To discuss these issues, we have the privilege here today to have two distinguished speakers. Mr. Filippo Grandi, who is United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and Mr. Per Olson Fried, who is the Secretary of State to the Minister for Development Cooperation. The High Commissioner and the Secretary of State will each speak for roughly 15 minutes. After that, I will open up the floor for questions from the audience, and this seminar will conclude at 7 o'clock sharp. So with those words of introduction, I give the floor to Mr. Filippo Grandi. Please, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Krister. Uh, Good evening, everybody. And uh, thank you, Per, for um, being here tonight and talk with me and with us about this important subject. First of all, I think uh, it is important to say that since I'm in Sweden, on this is not my first visit here, uh, not even as High Commissioner, I've been several times before, but I think, uh, especially since this will be my uh, contact with Swedish public, it's also a good opportunity to really say thanks to Sweden, to the Swedish people, to the Swedish government for the great support that uh, they continue to provide to us and to refugees. And this support, uh, we should make no mistake, is is quite um, is quite broad and diverse. It is uh, certainly financial support, and I need to qualify that because the financial support that Sweden provides to an organization like mine, and not only to my organization, is uh, very valuable, is very flexible, and uh, is uh, given in a predictable manner. These are all extremely important words in the type of world in which I live and I operate, which is extremely unpredictable, extremely volatile. So it provides a solidity, a foundation that uh, needs to be better known and better appreciated also by the Swedish public. Uh, I think Sweden needs to also be commended for being in these difficult times a very strong and uh, consistent supporter of multilateralism. We live in a world of 
global challenges. I mean, all that we will discuss tonight is a global challenge, and global challenges require collective responses. It is very clear. Uh, I think everybody can understand that, but unfortunately, there's a lot of rhetoric against that. The fact that a country like Sweden continues to be a supporter of international cooperation of multilateral responses is extremely important. Um, Christer mentioned the Global Compact on Refugees. I'll mention that a bit later. But uh, the Global Compact on Refugees was steered in its institutional um, uh, pathway, let's say, mostly by Sweden in the General Assembly. And I think it says a lot about the importance that Sweden attaches to this type of uh, instruments. I think I want to also flag an important feature of uh, uh, Sweden's international role, which is its attention to conflict resolution and to peace as an important objective to achieve to address some of these challenges. And this was very much in display during uh, Sweden's tenure at the Security Council, which ended last year, if I'm not. And finally, um, uh, the feminist foreign policy of Sweden that you know we, we hear about, I'll, I'll speak more about this a bit later, uh, is another one of these formidable assets in, the, in, in Sweden's international toolbox to address these issues. So it's not, it's, you know, financial contribution are very important, but it's in this context that I want to really share my gratitude uh, with, uh, with you. And frankly, friends, from my vantage point, or disadvantage point, I don't know, from my vantage point, friends are very much needed in this difficult world. There are 71 million refugees and displaced people. So people fleeing war, persecution, discrimination, human rights violation, violence in different forms in the world. This is the estimate that we have. This is the highest figure since we started counting decades ago uh, refugees and displaced people. And uh, um, uh, in this, the, 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 what is even more important perhaps than the figure is to consider the extreme complexity of these flows. People certainly flee violence, flees persecution, are refugees or must be considered refugees, but the causes that push them to flee are more and more diverse and interconnected. Poverty and inequality, bad governance, violations of human rights, discrimination of different forms, climate change, other developmental challenges, even epidemics. All of them are intertwined and make these flows of people very difficult to even define, not to mention respond to. We are strong believers that it is important to continue to maintain the categorization of certain of these people as refugees, as people that need, as we say in our own language jargon, in need of international protection because they have lost the protection of their states. But this categorization, which made somehow responses a bit more straightforward and easy to conceptualize, this categorization is becoming very challenging in a world in which people move often for different and interconnected causes. And this has 
been the big challenge of the last few years, linked, of course, with uh, a political reality that uh, sees, especially in developed countries, especially in the global north, sees this situation exploited by many unscrupulous politicians to seek consensus, which makes the response even more complicated, even for governments that want to do the right thing. So this is the context in which we operate as an organization. Remember an organization that was born almost 70 years ago, 68, 69 years ago, essentially to deal with individual refugees fleeing across the Iron Curtain. This is how UNHCR was born, and it has evolved during the year, but somehow, sometimes we look back to 70 years ago and think, okay, it looked complicated then. It's immensely more complex and complicated, uh, and complicated now. And uh, look at, uh, and, and, and of course, sorry, I should mention this important point. The, the one of the fundamental causes, looking back, Sweden's tenure of the Security Council remains, of course, this, uh, uh, incapacity, I would almost say, difficulty certainly that we all seem to be facing in the international community in addressing conflict. Making peace has become very difficult. Building peace, even when a ceasefire is arrived at, seems to be even more difficult. We don't seem to have got it right, even in places like Afghanistan, where at one point, I was there, I can tell you, at one point, we seem to have arrived at the conclusion of the conflict, building peace over the ruins of that conflict, over the after, in the aftermath of that conflict, proved an incredibly difficult challenge, challenge. And you see that things have gone backwards because of that failure. So making and building peace seems to be a big challenge of our times. We see it on our screens, whatever forms, whatever means you use to look at the news, computer, TV, we see it in, in these days. A conflict uh, like Syria, eight years, very soon nine years of conflict that has taken in reality many different shapes, has been many conflicts at once, has taken another shape in the last few days with the uh, Turkish intervention in northeast Syria with a, with a, with the exacerbation of an old conflict uh, 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 with the with, between the, the the Turkish government and Kurdish groups and this has somehow built itself into another phase of the Syrian conflict making it more complicated the result more displacement more people fleeing. We, we are at 180,000 internally displaced in northeast Syria and the first few thousand refugees that have crossed the border into Iraq. So somehow displacement seem to be, seems to be the almost inevitable result of these uh, unresolved conflicts, of this inability to make peace. Uh, the Europe crisis, refugee crisis of 2015 and 16, seems to have colored also a lot of the perceptions that prevail in the global, in the global north, even in this country. Uh, we should not forget the refugee crisis, the 71 million, is not really a crisis of the rich countries. It is still numerically, qualitatively, a, a crisis that affects mostly countries with few resources. 
85, maybe even 90% of those 71 million people are in countries that are either poor or middle income at best. So countries that have little means to respond to those crises. It's the Lebanons, it's the Ugandas, it's the Colombias, it's the Pakistans. These are the countries that continue to pay the highest price of those unresolved conflict and those population movement, and that are grappling economically, socially, with the consequences of these flaws, and that are grappling politically. I often hear politicians in the global north tell me, you know, we have to be cautious in the way we deal with refugees and migration because it is a very sensitive political issue, and I agree. But why do we think that refugees in other countries are not a sensitive political issue? In Lebanon, they are an incredibly sensitive issue. In, uh, in places like, uh, in many African countries, they are, you know, I'm just back from South Africa, they're an incredibly sensitive political issue. So we need to be more sensitive ourselves in the global north to the plight of the countries that are hosting the largest number of refugees. And the other thing that we need to be aware is that even within the domain of the refugee definition, the reasons why people leave and seek refuge and seek asylum are becoming more and more complex and diverse. They range from traditional, I don't know, but typical and extremely serious human rights violations. Think of the Rohingya community in Myanmar, most of which has now fled to Bangladesh from, again, the more traditional types of civil strife, of civil war, as in South Sudan, still the biggest refugee crisis in Africa. They range from very complex wars, often, often wars by proxy, such as we see in Syria or in Libya, to crises of governance and uh, of, of a political nature, as in Venezuela, to more specific forms of violence that are sometimes carried out not by states, but by non-state actors, as in Central America, where gangs terrorize entire communities and oblige them to flee in a manner that in the past we saw perpetrated only by bad governments. Forced recruitment, rape of women, uh, uh, kidnapping of children, occupation of houses. And this is generating a very large refugee crisis. Uh, the lack of political solutions means also that to characterize further this crisis, protracted crises continue to be very prevalent. Think of Afghanistan. Think of Somalia, for example, and other situations in Africa. And the displacement caused by this endless crisis, literally crisis without an end, is the most difficult to deal with. Think of even here in Sweden, the most difficult aspects of the asylum system here is when the asylum system has to deal with claims from Afghans, for example, or from Somalis, for people that come from very long situations. And the instinct is to think that very long situations do not produce refugees anymore. They still do, but it is more difficult to deal with them. Of course, in all of this, in all of this, you have some brighter spots, and I think it's important to think about them as well, not least because it shows that it is possible to move forward. In Ethiopia, we have a courageous prime minister, a new leader that uh, um, has uh, 
uh, has taken some very important steps internally and has taken some important steps externally, reaching out to Ethiopia's traditional uh, uh, rival in the region in the past 20 years, Eritrea, or antagonist in the last few years, uh, uh, through a peace agreement, uh, facilitating the peace process in South Sudan and Sudan to neighbors of Ethiopia. He was recently granted the Nobel Peace Prize. I think it was very well deserved because I think we need champions of courageous path towards peace. He has paid a very heavy price domestically for that because this, the, the reforms that he has conducted in his own country have opened up tensions that were lingering. And you know there's a lot of forced displacement. Many of those 71 million are in Ethiopia itself. But I think that, you know, that's why I think that uh, efforts like those of the Prime Minister of Ethiopia need international support because uh, they are difficult, they are challenging, they open up new challenges, and the international community should support this uh, leadership efforts because they're extremely important. Uh, a couple more things I wanted to say before I close. One is that this uh, talk is not only about the magnitude of humanitarian crisis, but also uh, there is a question in the title, I think, about solutions. Now, um, one thing that we have understood uh, in the last uh, few years is that the fact that uh, crises that cause displacement are so complex means that the responses that we give to them have to be complex as well, have to be more diverse and more broad than was the case in the past. Traditionally, refugee crises have been dealt with as humanitarian problems, and indeed they are. Indeed, they do require humanitarian responses, first aid help to people in distress, protection for those that may face problems because they are in exile, especially women, especially people that are more exposed, etc. So that is, those responses are still valid. However, however, it is important to look at all the other implications of this crisis. This is why the Global Compact on Refugees that was established in the UN last year um, argues or proposes to states broader responses. One of the fundamental tenets of the compact is that refugee responses should not be conducted in isolation. If you think yourself of a refugee in Africa, in the Middle East, the first thing that you associate with a refugee very often is a camp. You know, we always say, you know, oh, there are refugees in refugee camps. Now, in reality, most refugees are not in refugee camps, are in urban communities, are in rural communities. And, and also, may I say, I think it is better that we don't confine refugees to refugee camps. If we want to make sustainable the support to refugees in this protracted crisis, we have to think of new models. We have to think of models in which refugees are included in the services and the economy of that particular country. I'm not talking about integration here. I'm talking inclusion for the time that it is needed until they can go back to their countries. And, but that inclusion needs to be supported by the international community. So why this is a compact? It is really a compact between states that take in refugees and have to develop approaches, practices, and legislation that favor inclusion in Education, for example, 
or in health systems on the, or in the local labor market by allowing refugees to work. And in exchange, that's the compact element, the international community supports not just the refugees through humanitarian assistance, but also the systems of that country, the education system, the health system, the labor market of that country through appropriate intervention to benefit refugees, of course, but benefit also the host community. This is, you may say, oh, this is quite obvious. It's not obvious. This is not something that we have really done systematically in the past decades. And uh, I think that if we do this, we give host countries and the refugees that are hosted there that resilience that allow them to, to, to to, to carry on, to continue to live, to live in dignity, to live with opportunity until the time comes for those solutions that seem to be so slow in this political world. That's what the compact is about. We have devised actually very practical application of the compact in 15 countries already. And I think that uh, with the support of very big institutions like the World Bank and uh, some bilateral donors, but also private sector in many cases, we are devising new approaches, new methodologies that are beginning to be a game changer in the way at least we deal with the response to refugee crisis. I think that if we manage to make these developmental-based responses faster and more efficient, if we try to apply them more widely, and eventually when solutions happen, when people can go back to their homes, we apply them also to people returning in order to anchor them back in their society. Then we will make those true solutions and make those solutions truly sustainable. I think that one important aspect of all this, and I'm just flagging it, I can elaborate if you wish, is that another element that we need to take into account in crafting this new type of responses is that climate change the climate emergency is increasingly becoming also a factor of displacement per se, because climate change obliges people to move from their areas, as a, as a root cause that provokes other factors causing displacement. Climate change very often results in a decrease in resources that pitch communities against each other. This becomes conflict which provokes displacement. And let's not forget that displacement itself, when it is massive, as in Bangladesh, for example, the Rohingya community, has an impact on the environment. So there is another climatic or environmental dimension that needs to take into account. One more reason, I would say, to adopt this broader type of response, not just humanitarian, but developmental as well. And uh, I know that Pear will want to talk about a particular aspect of this, which is education, which is very dear to us. Education is an important investment, long neglected in the response to refugee crisis, but we are beginning to see that these developmental responses need to include that as well. I want to make a final comment here. I said in the beginning that uh, uh, you know we are we admire we admire we in the UN have admiration for um, the, the, this definition of foreign policy that Sweden, among very few other countries, has adopted, a feminist foreign policy. I think that uh, we, need, we, we must and we do take this uh, very seriously because um, the fact that we are 
such close, close partners to Sweden, but also to Canada and a few other countries that have a similar or the same approach, is very important to help us focus on this particular gender aspect of, uh, of displacement. Um, women are at the center of many of the key protection issues that we deal with in terms of refugee responses. More importantly even, women are at the center of many of the solutions that we are pursuing for, uh, to address refugee causes. I can give you a few examples in terms of protection issues. Um, sexual and gender-based violence is still extremely prevalent, extremely prevalent in most conflict situations. I would say that it is increasingly prevalent in many conflict situations, so needs particular attention. Women are often breadwinners in families in exile because very often men have left, have gone to fight, have been killed, or are absent. So the majority of, majority of households of people in exile are headed by women, and therefore they need particular support in this respect. Women are also multipliers of opportunities when those opportunities are given to refugees in this inclusive approach that we are promoting, that we are advising government to take. So both from the negative side, sexual and gender-based violence, and from the positive side, multiplier opportunities, somehow women are at the center of this discourse, of this debate. And this is why it is so important to uh, to uh, invest, to pay attention and to invest and to pay particular care, at a, give particular care to this uh, group of refugees and or to have a gender, uh, uh, a gender, a gendered approach to responses. I, uh, I think that I can say for having experienced it so often that communities in exile are painful to see because of everything that they have lost, right? And when you are with refugees, you feel this very strongly. And very often, it is women that hold it all together in this situation of loss and, uh, and, uh, and, and loss of reference points as well. Uh, and finally, I think that uh, uh, a feminist foreign policy, an important uh, focus on gender is very important in also how we conduct our business as an international organization. And uh, it has helped us a lot in, um, uh, in what I always say, my colleagues have heard me say this many times, in moving a big bureaucracy like that of a United Nations organization away from a culture, from a hierarchical culture of power to a culture of respect. I always say to my colleagues that the culture of power inevitably, very shortly, leads to abuse. Leads to abuse which can be hierarchical abuse, old versus young, but also men versus women, in a very negative way. And a culture of real authority is based on respect, on respect for all these different uh, balances of, uh, of, of different groups that are inevitable in a large organization working with many partners in very diverse 
cultures in very uh, challenging environments. So one more reason why attention to gender uh, has been extremely important in helping us promote this drive away from power and towards real authority, which I think is extremely important, not just for us to be more just and effective in how we do our work, but also more uh, fair to you, taxpayers of countries like Sweden, that give us so many of your resources in order for us to help the people in need. So thank you very much, and uh, uh, glad to have this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. Thank you very much, High Commissioner, and I would now like to give the floor to Secretary of State. Please, you have the floor. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Christo. Thank you, Filippo. Um, wonderful. And also a special thanks, I mean, to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs for convening this, this important discussion. It's always great to have a, a, a chance to, to meet and talk uh, when we have uh, uh, distinguished guests, guests like High Commissioner Grandi in, in town, I think. Um, Sweden remains a steadfast supporter of UNHCR. Uh, and your work in the field uh, and advocacy efforts are crucial uh, for helping saving lives every day. Millions of people demand, depend on you and your colleagues uh, at, at the High Commissioner and your dedicated staff to uphold the protection and the mandate that is given to you by the Geneva Convention. You provide at least some dignity to the millions of the most vulnerable people we have on the planet uh, whose access to rights and opportunities are being denied to a large extent. So thank you very much for that and, and our gratitude to all of the staff that you, that you work with. Sweden's unairmarked contribution to UNHCR is a bit more than um, a billion Swedish kroners a year, counting uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and SIDA together. And it's mostly unairmarked, meaning that we don't tell the High Commissioner what to do with his money. We say, we believe in your mandate and you should do your best to uphold it. That means that we allow Filippo Grandi and his colleagues to work where it's needed the most, when it's needed the most, and how best way you could, you could do your job. And we also advocate for other donors to, to provide this type of funding uh, um, so that we have, uh, we can uphold also the, the respect for international humanitarian law, saying that this support should come um, with objective uh, manners and not in the areas where the donor countries sort of prioritize the best. Um, and this, this we take a lot of, um, this is a very principled stand that we, that we also advocate a lot for. Humanitarian needs uh, and global displacement, as, as uh, High Commissioner said, unprecedented levels. One in, every, one in every 70 person or people around the world is in, caught up in crisis and it urgently needs humanitarian assistance in some way. And as, as the High Commissioner said, we also see this development with protracted crisis. But humanitarian crises are lasting longer and longer. Uh, and, and the average now is nine years, more than nine years for a humanitarian crisis. And they're increasingly man-made, increasingly conflict-driven, increasingly climate-driven. And obviously, the solution lies here in addressing the root causes, of course, to conflict and finding political solutions to end this or to combat climate change, for example. At the same time, I think we as a humanitarian community need to accept that the challenges, that the challenges is increasingly complex, that the crises who are protracted 
And that means that we need to adapt our response so that it becomes more sustainable. And we're coming, I'm going to come back to this nexus of, of short-term humanitarian response and a long-term development response. The High Commissioner brought up many aspects of this, and, and let me pick up one of the issues, which is education. Education, as you all know, a, a fundamental human right, um, meaning that every child, every young person has the right to go to school, has the right to learn. However, for displaced children, the right, the access to education is, of course, a major challenge, and it impacts the sustainable development and they, on, or the sort of uh, inclusion of future generations in sustainable development. Sadly, in 35 conflict or crisis-affected countries around the world, humanitarian emergencies, protracted crises, have disrupted education for more than 75 million children between the age of 3 and 18. Among refugees, 4 out of 10 of primary school-aged children and 4 out of 5 of secondary school-aged adolescents are not enrolled in, into education. And girls living in conflict-affected countries are 2.5 times more likely to be out of school than boys. So thank you for your words on our feminist foreign policy. Definitely, we have to have a gender lens in all of these issues, especially maybe in the humanitarian crisis. So education is, is one area where Sweden, as a devoted donor, is deeply engaged to make a difference. Investing in education is key. It's key to reach all of our sustainable development goals, but in particular goal number four, access to, to ensure inclusive and, and quality education, promote lifelong learning. For children in emergencies who have grown up in displacement, education is, of course, also of a paramount importance. And, and maybe you know, the right to education is actually three. It's the right to education, it's the right in education, and it's the right through education. And education provides protection against violence, against exploitation, including recruitment into armed groups. Education helps children deal with trauma, with their difficult experiences. Education provides also the essential skills to help build their resilience in order to reach opportunities to influence their societies and in the end reduce risks uh, and contributing to a more peaceful settlement or peaceful societies. So we need to ensure that the refugees are included and not left behind in access to education. But we cannot afford to lose another generation in this and this I think we are on our way of doing. Through humanitarian funding, Sweden provides support not only to UNHCR, of course, but also to UNICEF, to UNESCO, to International Migration, or Organization of Migration, to several of the international NGOs. And we are a large contributor to the Global Partnership for Education. And we are also the fifth largest donor to an international fund, global fund, called Education Cannot Wait. To meet, and this we do, to meet the specific needs of children and youth in conflict-affected areas. Now, we support education in emergencies as part of our bilateral uh, cooperation in several displacement contexts. We do that in, in Afghanistan, we do it in Uganda, we do it in Syria, and more so. And in view, you know, the High Commissioner spoke of, of the upcoming Global Refugee Forum. In view of that, Sweden is also the one of several co-sponsors of a track of education, participating in a broad alliance of, of support in this specific area. Now, we encourage, of course, more partners to take part in this uh, in a common pledge uh, with a focus on refugee education and inclusion in national systems. I think it's fair to say that we owe all refugee and displaced children our best efforts to fulfill 
our pledges in this, in this uh, sake. In this regard, we strongly, of course, agree with the objective outlines in the Global Compact, uh, namely to ensure that refugee children are enrolled in school within three months of their displacement. Now, this is a strong promise, but it's a strong promise that we have to uphold and we have to meet. It is beyond any doubt, I would say, that we need to see greater international support for education in these contexts, in refugee contexts. This includes funding that is predictable, that is flexible, and allows for earlier response to demands on education. No matter how important funding is, we, and the funding that we already provide, we still need to do more. And maybe, even though we know that there is a large gap of funding to humanitarian response, I would say that the political um, support to this is even more, I mean, in a larger extent needed globally. Now, I very much appreciate the High Commissioner's perspective that uh, this is not only about refugee communities or refugee camps, but about host communities. And to support education for refugees and host population is, is an important example of this nexus between humanitarian support and international development work. Um, it helps to reduce tensions between communities and, and, the host, uh, and also provides or the ability to host or to give the host population and the host community better uh, means for a better future as well. Remembering that most refugees actually are in very, in very vulnerable settings and contexts in, in, in low or the lower middle income countries. By, by using this inclusive perspective and using this nexus as a working method, we can provide not only refugees, but also very vulnerable populations that actually, if we don't do this, in the future might become refugees, to access to markets, to better agriculture, and to better education. And this is what we need. And I, myself, I, I came back from, from Ethiopia just a few weeks ago. I saw great examples of this in the south, on the border to Somalia, uh, where we are able to provide host communities um, with, with agricultural projects that helps build resilience, give both refugees and host communities access to markets, and therefore we help the whole of the region and not only the refugees. But this is a new way of working that we're still, I think, learning and adapting to. Now, I'm gonna end, but I'm gonna end with some questions because I think we are not completely prepared. We're not skilled and equipped today to handle 79 million refugees. Having a future where this number probably go up. I met with UNEP, the uh, United Nations Environmental Program, uh, last week in New York. They gave me a number saying that if we don't get, if we don't fight back climate change and end up on at least you know one and a half point, uh, degree of, of uh, temperature, but coming slowly to two, maybe three, we might have up to three, four hundred million refugees just because of climate change. Now, the mandate that you have, High Commissioner, and the rules and regulations around this are not prepared for this. We as, as the Global North are not prepared for this. And I'm sure that those host countries, the most vulnerable ones, the lower income countries around the world are not prepared for this. So we need to start thinking in a new ways. And we're not just thinking big. And we need to start, need to start doing that quite, quite soon. So how can we better close this gap in education, in other sectors, to give children, to give people on, on um, refugees the protection they, they should have. You play, of course, a key role. Um, but how can we ensure long-term and sustainable solutions to these issues together as a world community, humanitarian community, the, the development community together? And do you see, High Commissioner, do you see any 
specific innovative solutions that you run into that are in particular that you say would deserve the attention of us and others in a more constructive way? And how do we shift the mindset from hosting, of, of hosting governments, including in, in Europe, and other involved parties to treat refugee crisis as an opportunity for the local economy? And what new types of partnership do we actually need to get this thing going? These are issues that you know, we have to start talking about, that I know the High Commissioner is deeply involved with, and that we also need to have a public debate on. So I wanted to put them on the table. Christo, thank you very much. Thank you very much for two very interesting and stimulating presentations. Uh, it's now time to uh, open up for questions from the audience. And uh, sorry, I hope you hear me. Uh, but perhaps I should start by raising one question myself. And that is uh, a little bit in relation to my own background as an international lawyer who once many years ago studied law at Uppsala University, including refugee law. And already back then, uh, when we studied the 1951 convention and the 1967 protocol amending the 1951 convention, you had a sort of slight feeling of, well, this was a convention set up for a very specific situation uh, after the Second World War, and uh, things have moved on and we were facing new challenges. Uh, and the good thing about being director of UI is that you can come with any crazy ideas that you may come up with, because when I, and I read also the compact was, was thinking about was, wouldn't it be time to look into the question of a new convention on the status of displaced people? Or would that be completely unrealistic to have any, any sort of uh, hope for the conclusion of such a treaty? I don't know if you both have any comments on that question. Well, I'm surrounded by questions. Which ones should <laughs> I? I'll start with you. <laughs> From the state secretary, or maybe I'll make very quick comments more than elaborate question in the interest of time. First of all, the state secretary Per made a, an interesting comment on the three four hundred million people that may become refugees as an effect of climate. Uh, I think that uh, I don't know the figures. I think nobody knows these figures. These are just uh, estimates which indicate one thing. That they don't want us to be tagged. Um, the, it is clear that with the increase, if the climate emergency is not addressed and st start moving back, this will cause more displacement in many different ways. Slow displacement, fast displacement, natural disaster, you name it. We've already seen it escalating. Whether we are, we are a little bit, and somehow I go back to your point, we are a bit hesitant to call this climate refugees because we think that the definition of refugees has to be preserved because it is, um, you know, a refugee is protected by an international system, legal system. And uh, I think it, we better preserve it as it is uh, and not tamper with it too much because in this present uh, environment, the risk is that we go backwards, not forward, in guaranteeing, in, in offering refugees protection. However, there are a lot of people that are displaced by other factors. They're not technically refugees. Forgive me, I'm not trying to preserve a turf or to be academic here. 
I am politically prudent. You understand why I, I, I say this. Um, but I think that a lot of other people also may face protection challenges because of their displacement. Either because they are internally displaced, I think you were referring to that, and many of them are fleeing exactly for the same reason as refugees, but they don't cross borders, so they're still in their country and they sometimes face even bigger challenges because to reach them is more difficult. And then you have people moving for other reasons, forcibly displaced by climate change, and they also need some protection. So in the case of climate, what we are saying, and a few days ago, you know, we met with all our, we have a yearly meeting with all the states that constitute our board, if you wish, our governing board, and I expanded a bit on this topic because I think it's very important. I was also coming from New York where this was the theme of this year's opening of the General Assembly. And I said UNHCR can offer quite a lot by way of forms of protection for people who cross borders because of climate effect. And I think this phenomenon will see it more and more. And we can be helpful. In addition, we can be helpful in addressing the other phenomenon that I mentioned later, which is also environmental, the impact of this movement on, on, on the environment. And so there are many angles through which we enter in this debate. We are part of this debate, but let's make no mistake. Addressing climate is not a humanitarian issue. It is a very big developmental issue that requires even more than traditional development interventions, require changing our way of life. But I don't want to get into that. But that's the fundamental issue of climate change that we should not lose sight of if we want to address it. We can only, as a humanitarian organization, as a refugee organization, help mitigate some of the effect of this climate change that are related to displacement. In terms of displacement convention, I think that uh, attempts have been made, as you probably know. For example, in Africa, in, uh, 19, in 2009, because it's the 10th anniversary, a convention to respond, to, to, to help state respond to situation of internal displacement was agreed by the African Union. This is the first example. It's very interesting that in Africa, some of the most progressive legal instruments for protection of refugees and displaced exist. And one of them is this convention, which now we are trying to have government apply to their legislation. It's difficult because internally displaced people often are at odds with their own governments. So we're asking governments to take care of people that are sometimes in opposition to that government, especially when that government conducts practices that are not very good. So it's a complex issue, but uh, more complex in a way than, than legal instruments for refugees, but one that is worth continuing to study. The Secretary General will soon put together, very soon, I think in the next few weeks, a high-level panel on internal displacement. Sweden has been one of the countries urging the formation of this panel. It will be a group of eminent people that will help the UN develop further thinking and approaches on people that are refugees in their own countries, internally displaced people. Remember, of that 71 million, two-thirds are internally displaced, so they need urgent attention. I'll stop here for now. And... Well, 
Um, thanks to the High Commissioner Mooney for his elaboration on this, showing how, how complex this is. And, and I mean, uh, for sure, the world is very different now from when those instruments were, were negotiated and put into practice. And for sure, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, the world will be very different again. Now, change is the only constant. Um, and, and this we know. So it's very difficult to say what, what kind of instruments we need. But I share also the concern that, that um, as, as I read the sort of global politics at this point, to open up negotiations on this might not lead maybe to the instrument that would be, uh, you know, that we would want to have to also cherish other human rights instruments that we, that we have in place. Unfortunately, I think, and this goes across the board from from refugee rights to sexual and health and reproductive rights and so on, human, the human, human rights are actually being pre under severe pressure at the moment, and opening up instruments should, would probably not lead to, to, uh, to the positive outcome. So we need to protect, and we need to stand up, and we need to recommit to what we have negotiated and what we have agreed on at the first place. This is, this is what the battle is about today, I think, unfortunately. Yes, thank you very much. Now I would like to open up for questions from the audience, and we have a question right over there. I'm sorry, we will take three consecutive questions, so please. Thank you very much. My name is Ashay Kak. I'm a security researcher on South Asia. I would really like to thank uh, High Commissioner for bringing up the Rohingya refugee crisis and the situation about that. Uh, some of you may know for almost 30 years, about 200,000 of them have been living in Bangladesh and they don't have education rights. Uh, for the last two years, the number has come to up to one million. I was actually wondering if uh, the Secretary of State or uh, the UI Director might be able to uh, discuss a little bit what is the understanding of the Rohingya situation in the policymaking circle in Sweden or the academic uh, think tank circles? Thank you. A question up there. Yes, thank you. Thank you both for very interesting remarks. Um, I have a question about the safe and legal pathways, which is a really pressing issue, obviously, for refugees and something that often comes up in the debate. Um, at the same time, we see a tendency in European countries and in North America to move towards stricter policies uh, on immigration and asylum. Uh, so my question is, uh, do you see a path forward here? Uh, how can we combine uh, these two? Can we, can, is, can we have safe pathways and legal pathways for refugees in this political climate? Thank you very much. And I saw a hand over there. I think it is. It, uh, okay. Yes. One more question then. Yes, in the front row. Mike, please. Thank you. Uh, I have a question related to the future European Commission and their decision to create a, a new portfolio named Protecting Our European Way of Life and their decision of uh, basically creating this new portfolio and its focus on uh, steering policy making on migration and security, education and employment. What's your view on uh, what this portfolio will be about? <laughs> Yeah, maybe two for me, uh, safe and legal pathways. Um, yeah, I think this is also very much in the compact. We are advocating that uh, it is important that um, uh, states, in addition to helping 
refugees collectively, where most of the refugees are, as I said, in the global south, let's call it like that. And in addition to keeping the doors open for people that seek asylum in their own countries, because some people will continue to arrive spontaneously in every country, so both are important, help them there, receive them here, consider their claim if they seek asylum. It's important that a third way somehow continues to exist, meaning a, an organized movement of refugees from one country to the other. This is what a safe pathway is. We call it resettlement. This is the most typical name, but there's many other ways that you can create safe pathways through scholarships, for example, or special humanitarian visas, etc. This Safe pathways are important because some people, some people uh, flee from a country, go into another country, and are still not safe there, often for specific circumstances. Think of women that have endured violence. Many of the Rohingya women were raped and suffered incredible violence before fleeing to Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, in difficult conditions, they don't get the proper care the proper attention, the proper protection. Or take um, LGBT uh, uh, refugees that flee from one country in Africa to another where they may still be discriminated, although they do receive asylum. Or think of people that have political uh, reasons for fleeing and being very near their country may still be under threat because it's very close. These are just examples of people that may need this uh, uh, safe pathways to move on to a more stable place. But also some, you know, programs of resettlement may include people that have specific uh, um, potential that uh, can best be deployed in other countries. So it's a, it's, a, it's a variety of people that deserve attention and deserve to have these pathways. The question of this pathway is that we have to be realistic. In 2018, if I'm not mistaken, we resettled, the people resettled through these pathways were less than 100,000. You may think it's a big number, I, I mean worldwide. It's not a big number if you think that of the 71 million, the refugees that are eligible for these pathways are 25 million. So it's a very small percentage. So it will always be a solution of choice for some people. Sweden is a very generous receiver of uh, resettled refugees, 5,000 a year. It is, we are very grateful for that, and we think it is important to preserve it. It is also a gesture of solidarity with countries that are hosting million. We take some of them, at least. We share a little bit of that uh, burden. And uh, the other question about this uh, new commissioner for to defend the European, you know, I can't really speak for the European Commission and the European institution, but as a European, I can maybe say that, uh, I think that the way it is meant, maybe the title is a little bit ambiguous, the way it is meant, it is meant to say that Europe is founded on values of solidarity, of openness, of diversity, of tolerance, of human rights. In that case, I think it is good to defend European values, otherwise I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Filippo, for that. Um, now, to answer the question on, 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 uh, on the Rohingyas, uh, I, I would say in general, yes, the understanding and the knowledge is quite uh, broad. Um, I have myself, having, you know, have 
have had to have discussions with this on the in, in Parliament on the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, for example. Uh, it's being brought up by in NGOs in, in several hearings and meetings. Um, it is definitely part of our bilateral development cooperation, both to Myanmar and to Bangladesh. Uh, and I also know that we have been involved in, 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 in the role of the World Bank in, in, in putting a lot of pressure to change uh, the education system in Bangladesh to be more inclusive uh, towards the Rohingya. So th there, there is a quite a broad understanding, although, to be very honest, it is also under very tough competition with the situations we have in Syria, in, in Yemen, in Venezuela, of course. So maybe not on top of the agenda every day, but it's it's definitely it's definitely there. Um, I think you answered, bro you know, on, also for me on the on the second question on the commission. I, I'm 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 saying I'm a little surprised because I thought that, that they changed the name of it. But the last thing I heard was that, they that it will have another name. Uh, because you know it sounds like you don't really know what it means when you hear it. So you th I thought it was uh, a big, uh, a bit uh, changed um, actually. Uh, although I think um, I agree with the High Commissioner uh, uh, on on his comment. I I think in some part this is a result of a compromise between different parties uh, negotiating how the different portfolios of the Commission should look like. Um, to, to say something very positive about the new commission. I, I'm very happy about the strong commitment to the uh, sustainable development goals, to the SDGs that the commission has put out, uh, that all commissioners, independently on what uh, area of, uh, of uh, focus that they have, should work hard to implement the uh, sustainable development goals uh, full out. And I think, and this is a call for everyone, I think, I think some of the commissioners that are coming in have uh, not so broad or deep knowledge of the sustainable development goals. So I think there's a great momentum and challenge for all of us to feed into and give examples of how can we now, as a European community, how can we now live up to the SDGs, including, of course, this commission. Thank you very much. I see that we have basically run out of time. We have a few minutes left, but we have two more requests for the floor. The gentleman over here in a dark tie, here. And then towards the back of the room also. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Abul Kalam. I belong to the Rohingya community. I am chairperson of the Swedish Rohingya Association and a board member of the European Rohingya Council. So I have been already 41 years as a refugee in different countries. Fortunately, now I became a citizen. Now, my question is already you mentioned a sustainable education system in the refugee camp. Still, there is no sustainable uh, education for Rohingya. And second question is, uh, it is the fact that there was not a single successful repatriation of Rohingya from Bangladesh to Myanmar. I mean, 1992, repatriation was forceful, and those who were pushed to Myanmar came back. Again, as a refugee to Bangladesh, what are you as a head of uh, UN refugee doing to make sure that the victims and survivors of genocide uh, of Rohingya in Bangladesh to include in the negotiation of repatriation process for it to be successful? 
This is the, my question. And second is only request. I have few letters uh, which I uh, sent to you, but last uh, since three years, I never We're running out of time. Answer. Yeah, no, so, so. so I will uh, forward you. Thank you. So at the back. Thank you very much. My name is Waris. I'm a researcher at Stockholm University. Uh, first of all, welcome to Stockholm, and it's great to see you once again in less than a year. Last time we met very briefly at the uh, United Nations uh, Ministerial Conference in Geneva on Afghanistan. You moderated one of the events, uh, People on the Move. So I don't have a specific question per se, but I would like to make a brief remark. Uh, I hear now and then critiques uh, saying that the United Nations is bureaucratic, it's, uh, it, it has flaws, and it's inefficient. But uh, let's not forget here that the lives that the United Nations is saving every day uh, in different parts of the world. And uh, um, it reminds me of the famous words of uh, Second Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, who was Swedish also, Doug uh, Hammarskjöld, who once said that the UN is uh, created not to lead uh, mankind, mankind to heavens, but to save humanity from the hell. And people fleeing uh, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, and different countries in Africa, they're fleeing for their lives. And also, I would like to take this opportunity to thank the, uh, your organization for the tremendous work it's been doing for someone who is from Afghanistan and who has grown up in Pakistan, uh, uh, who studied in a school that was supported by the UNCR, who got a university scholarship that, again, supported by the UNCR. I, I owe much of the success in my life, uh, in my career, to this organization. And of course, the people uh, such as yourself who has devoted much of their lives uh, almost all of, uh, more than 35 years, I suppose you've been working with the UNCR. Um, I thank you for your services, and I wish you best of luck to you and your organization for the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you have any comments. Thank you. Uh, just to say that, uh, yes, the, uh, the question of education in the, of the uh, Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh is very complicated. And it, it is a broader issue of uh, um, balancing the necessity to continue to emphasize that the best solution for the Rohingya refugees is to return with full rights in their country and to enjoy a normal life in their country, which has been a major challenge for the past decades. And at the same time, during this period of waiting, give them the opportunities that they deserve Otherwise, children will grow up without a proper education. People will become dependent on aid, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to balance this complicated issue also in our discussions with the government of Bangladesh. As the state uh, secretary mentioned, we're working with the World Bank, with UNICEF, and other institutions on this very important issue of education. You can rest assured that I have raised this issue both with the Myanmar and Bangladesh leadership many times. We are uh, studying ways to, um, in, to uh, improve education, and I think we're making a little bit of progress. I've, written, I've recently written again to the two leaders, and uh, we're trying to move in that particular direction. So uh, uh, th this is the, f and, and then you touch on the fundamental issue, which is the solution, which is voluntary repatriation, sustainable repatriation. And again, I've recently written to the Myanmar leadership saying there are a number of things that need to be done. If people go back and they said that people are welcome back, well, if people are welcome back, then they have to have freedom of movement, they have to have access to services and jobs, and the fundamental issue of citizenship has to be resolved. And uh, the, you know that the former Secretary General, the late Kofi Annan, 
had written a very important report after an assessment in which he made a number of recommendations, including on citizenship. Those recommendations that have been accepted by the government of Myanmar need to be fully implemented. This will create the conditions for people to return. Otherwise, as we have seen in August when an attempt at repatriation was made, it will not succeed. People simply will not go back unless those, uh, those uh, uh, things, the, the, those measures are taken to encourage them to go back. And by the way, you know, there's a lot of Rohingya people that are still in Myanmar, many of them displaced, many of them confined in camps for the past six, seven years. That also needs to be addressed. And I've raised this with the Myanmar leadership. We've seen a little bit of progress. UNDP and UNHCR are working in northern Rakhine, which was not possible before. We are trying to uh, expand our range of action to conduct projects that are conducive to social cohesion between the different groups, because this is the big challenge there. But uh, it is slow progress, which needs to be accelerated if we want to find a solution to this very intractable problem. So I think it's something that certainly we at UNHCR are very much focused in. And thank you very much for your kind words. You know that I have lived four years in your country. So I'm very, very attached to it. And I'm glad that uh, you feel this. Unfortunately, I think the challenges are very big. And what we're doing is still inadequate because we need to find a political solution to the conflict and move Afghanistan back on the path to recovery. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I would like all of you to thank you very much for coming to this seminar today here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And I would like all of us to join me in an applause for the two great presentations that we had today. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>